procedural fairness is the process by which you build trust, and trust is best built through quality and the quantity of the communication you have with someone or a group of people. Purpose Deep Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Calvin Eglinton. Calvin is the Chief Executive of Momentum Waikato. They're a community foundation doing place-based giving. They're also facilitating large capital projects. Calvin has spent an age in CSR and some really difficult parts of the world, often in the mining world, bags of experience, really nice guy. Enjoy the episode. Don't forget to share with friends, family, colleagues, and hit subscribe. Enjoy. Calvin Eglinton, you're the CEO of Momentum Waikato. Welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thanks, Mark. Real honour to uh, catch up with you. What is your organisation's vision and mission? It's a community foundation, but it's a community foundation with a bit of difference. Yeah. Um, so our vision is a better Waikato for everyone forever, and we do that through two things. One, obviously, is the, is the growth of endowment fund. We are up for our 10th birthday in May of next year, and we currently sit around $35 million worth, so we're we're growing quite quickly. And then we are in the fortunate position of having untagged funds, uh, which we established through the initial establishment loan, which is an interest-free loan from the Well Energy Trust to be paid back over uh, 64 years. And that investment allows us to then do our second objective, which is to act as an impact investor or a direct investor into impact projects, so social projects. So those are our two objectives, grow an endowment fund and uh, utilise proceeds to create impact and change in our communities. And largely those are in the areas of of housing, which is a a nationwide issue, particularly in the space of affordable housing, so not the social end, which is government, and not the market end, but in that space where working families need smaller typology homes and, and different deliberate initiatives. And then we also work in connected communities and wellness centres like the Houchins Retreat. And then we back other civic projects such as the Waikato Regional Theatre, which is the $80 million theatre. And we drive those sorts of projects where really what we're doing is we're bringing capability and connecting and convening to enable those projects to get up. Wonderful. And we probably should explain a little bit, especially for our international guests, around what the Waikato, where it's situated. So, you know, for just south of the largest city, Auckland, big wide-ranging area, real mix between urban and rural. Yeah, Tell us a bit about the Waikato. The Waikato is a, a large rural region, but, but uh, as you said, so it's south of Auckland, which is our largest city, uh, by now connected by an expressway. So we're about an hour and 15 minutes to the heart of Auckland Central. But our big largest urban centre is... Uh, Hamilton, which has uh, close to 200,000 people now, but the whole region is getting upwards to 600,000 people and covers, if you include the Waikato Regional Council areas, it includes 11 local authorities and starts really north of Lake Taupo and all the coast on the western side up to the bottom of the uh, to the Waikato River and includes New Zealand's longest river, the Waikato Awa, or the river, and goes eastward through to the Bay of Plenty. So includes the Coromandel. So we have lots of townships, uh, everything from Cambridge and Huntley and Tukorua and you know, lots of smaller communities that also exist around the large urban hub. But it's um, 
It's also home to Waikato Tonui, so one of our largest iwis of Māori and Tangata Whenua here in New Zealand, uh, who settled with the Crown a number of years ago. And we are positioned in what's known as the Golden Triangle. So within a 90-minute drive of Hamilton, you've got half the country's population. And on our eastern side, we have the Port of Tauranga, which is our largest uh, import port. And then, of course, as I said, Auckland to the north. So large population growth, massive amounts of investment, agricultural base, manufacturing base. So a great opportunity for community foundations. And where there is need in in the Waikato and where people are struggling, where does it tend to be? Is it it sort of located in one area or what are the issues that people face? Is it it around employment, earnings? What what are the issues that face across the region? Yeah, we've done the vital sign study, which I think a lot of community foundations and a lot of your listeners will be aware of taking that approach where we use you know, data-led discussions and indicators, but then we take that out and work closely with communities. And because we've got, as I said, 11, uh, 11 district councils within the region, um, and within those district councils, there can be you know, two or three communities, ta- urban towns. But So the, the areas of greatest need, as we said, are affordable housing and tenure of housing, so different models of home ownership and different models of long-term lease. Connected communities, so we do have quite rural and uh, remote communities in the Waikato as well. So connection there is around what we mean by connected communities is connection to wellness centres, to to the internet, to the digital divide, to education services, to those sorts of things. And then we talk about development pathways for young people in terms of accessing development education opportunities. And then like a lot of the world, environmental issues, particularly with the Waikato River, in the Waipa River in the catchment that is from Lake Topol, which is our largest inland lake, and the river that flows from that, the Wakatawa out to the sea. So those are our four key areas. But they are generally, we, we do have a higher than usual uh, Māori and Pacifica community here because of the of the base of Wakatatainui, but Pacifica also because there was big immigrations into areas like Tokoroa in the 50s, 1950s for things like um, forestry work and the like, and that large agricultural base and now horticulture base. So we we have this great wealth and great opportunity and generosity, but like lots of places, we also have great need. And I think the great thing which defines the Waikato is its generosity and our ability to be connected and try and find new ways of resolving things. And, and I talk a lot about community foundations being uniquely placed to sit between that growing gap between the market and the government services and be more agile in that space. Yeah, because they, you know, from one community foundation globally, also locally in New Zealand, they vary massively in terms of how they operate, don't they? And that being that philanthropic kind of vehicle for private money to maybe sit alongside public money to do good, you know, but to fuel really good projects. And so you've been there just, just under five years. What made you take the plunge? Was it the the opportunity around the capital projects? What was the main sort of motivation to join did they approach you? How did that sort of happen? Yeah, so I, prior to starting here, I, or actually a few years before that, I was involved in the mining industry and corporate social responsibility and, and external affairs work. And way back, my initial uh, career started in the sports industry. So always working either in, you know, alongside community and, and sporting interests and local and central governments. And that transformed itself over time into quite strategic priorities, for example, the, the amalgamation of Auckland 
uh, into a unified city council from what was then nine different local authorities and different funding models, and I led that work. But then the move to mining was about, you know, mining was looking to do exploration work into the Coromandel, where we, where we then lived with my wife and, and child. And I thought, look, if we're going to have this, we want someone in there who can work. And, and fortunately, at the time, they were looking for someone to do external affairs and corporate responsibility. So I got that role, initially based at Waihe, the gold mine there, and then over time with Newmont, who were the, that then the second largest gold mining company, I then was fortunate enough to move to Perth and to work across Asia-Pacific doing social responsibility work. So that was the sort of work where we're working with local communities looking at you know, development opportunities from the capital, repurposing opportunities with there's closure of the mines, how do we repurpose the work, and how do we do development opportunities based off the mines capital and the resources, how can we best leverage what a mine brings in terms of skills and capital and, and, and business opportunities. And I did that in Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands and, and fortunately did some work in Ghana. We had a head office in Denver. So I was able to work alongside, um, you know, utilise the capital of a, of a large multinational, but also work alongside central governments of those communities and councils and state governments and the World Bank and the IFC and others. So... When um, my final role there was I was Chief of Staff in Jakarta um, in Indonesia, working for um, Newmont Indonesia uh, at the Batu Hijau mine. And when we sold that mine, my wife, who is Māori, we felt it was time to come home. Our son was uh, sort of, I think he was nine at the time. And we came home to New Zealand. And initially I was working, I got a job in Hamilton at the City Council, which is the fourth largest city council in the country. But local government, you know, as you know, is full of bureaucracy and, and took a while to do things. And whilst I loved the work and loved the culture, it probably wasn't for me. And then the chairperson at the time, Leonard Gardner, and the deputy chair, Neil Richardson, who are both hugely uh, successful businessmen, but also incredibly generous and engaged in community, approached me to say, hey, you know that stuff you were doing for mining? Do you think you could do that here if we had the opportunity to, to bring that capability into the philanthropic sector? And alongside that uh, was was the the development, or conceptually at that time, was the was the development of the Waikato Regional Theatre, which is the eighty million dollar facility that we had on concept. And they said, "Look, we'd like you to lead that project and do this concept of impact investment." And what does that look like? So look, that was too good an opportunity not to pick up, and and you know they allow me too to continue to do freelance work. So I continue to do freelance work with mining companies and with development communities and with councils to to sort of build on this concept of purpose and and do some of this work not just here in New Zealand but across Australia. So it's quite you know it's been a it's been a great opportunity. So yeah, really fascinating career. And sort of when you go back to your degrees, you did a degree at Lincoln University and then a, from the look of it, a double degree actually, but a real focus on on sport and recreation. Was sport your first passion was that yeah what you were most excited about yeah it was look i grew up in the manawatu you know i was the first i was the youngest of five grew up in rural manawatu which is you know um which is down and around palmas north just north of wellington and you know went to palmas north boys high school and it was a very traditional middle class you know my parents were blue collar workers my father was a truck driver we had a, a small farm and um you know, when I was going to leave school, I was thinking, oh, I'll be a builder or a policeman because we just weren't exposed to the wider world, you know. But there was a guy, Paul Pottinger, 
who fantastic, and I'm still in touch with him today. And he was the guidance counselor there. And he sat me down. And he said, "Calvin, what are you planning to do when you leave high school next year?" And I said, "Oh, you know, probably be a builder, a policeman." He said, "Look, mate, there's nothing wrong with those things, but there's a whole wide world out there, and I think you should go to university. You should." Or travel and go and see what's out there, and, and you don't have to make a decision at seventeen. You know, you, you can you can make a decision whenever you like about what you end up doing. And you know, I've just turned fifty, and I'm still not sure what I'm going to do. Yeah, um, but his advice, <laughs> love that, yeah, yeah. But his advice was, um, look, go and just follow your passion. And at that time, I was in the first fifteen and rugby and all the rest of it. So I had a mate of mine who just moved to Christchurch. Paul Potts said to me, look, there's a great course at Lincoln called Parks and Recreation. Go down there. If you don't like it, you can finish. But went down and found study and found university and it you know, widened my thinking and exposed me to lots of other ideas. And, and there was a particular paper that we did around strategic planning and implementation. And I have to say, it was that paper and then following that course of study around strategy and even back then the concepts of you know, the three capitals, people, environment, finance, was just starting. Mm. And we were right at the forefront of that. And, and all of the work I've done since has really been about not just strategy, but actually implementation of strategy and impl- around really sort of wicked problems, whether that's in the sporting context or whether it was local government or you know, working, you know, literally in complex situations in Papua New Guinea with warring tribes and yeah. uh, mining companies and, and, you know, riots and all sorts of things. So, yeah, that's where I started. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful for, to Paul Pottinger because he really you know, opened, the, opened the doors, which, um, and as I just said, you know, I'm, I'm, I've just turned 50 and I'm still not sure what I'm going to do, but I've had a pretty good ride so far. And dealing with complexity. So were you, you didn't know what you wanted to do, but were you quite a mature 20 something year old were you we and you this idea of dealing with complex situations multiple stakeholders was was that even evident back then like was that kind of did you find yourself sort of you know being quite confident in those situations and being drawn towards them or yeah funny you say that because i was the youngest of five and they were a lot older than me I, quite effectively there was two years between my brothers and sisters, and then there was a big six-year gap. So <laughs> mum and dad always say, oh, it's a mistake. But um, <laughs> I think being around a lot older um, siblings and then when they left home, you know, I was around mum and dad a lot. And, and you know, dad was d- – dad's advice to me from the day I left to go to work was if you can get on and have a chat with the mayor and you can also shake hands and talk to the people and who, street, who sweep the streets – you'll get on well in life. And dad was a, a mum and dad both were working examples of that. You know, he was a, a truck driver during the day, but he was also an accomplished jazz musician. So then in the evening, he would go and play in front of, you know, the prime minister and he'd be in those circles. And we would, so, you know, during the day, he was sitting in the pub having a beer and then he'd, with his gum boots on, and then he'd dress up and be in a tuxedo and, and play to, you know, thousands of people. So that, I've always followed that advice, and indeed, I give that to my own son today. But I think you, one of the great things about starting off in the sports industry, and I had a, a fantastic first boss, Lorraine Vincent, and in those days we were in sports trusts, so like community sort of foundations at the times just for sport. But in those days, we, you know, it was scraping to do anything, and we had to be our own finance people we did our own hr we had to you know to be our own strategic planners we had to be our own complaints processes so 
from that base when you're working in philanthropy and non-profits where you have to have all those skill sets and work with multiple stakeholders, you do learn those soft skills. And I think that's becoming more and more evident in the modern world, that the ability to keep people in the tent or keep people around the table, keep people talking. And I think one of the things that I've developed over time is a concept called translational leadership. And what that means is you can talk to you know, one side of the argument, you can talk to the other side of the argument, you can then talk to another view, but you can bring those three views to the table in, in such a way that everyone understands the perspectives and can also identify a way forward. I mean, it's not always as easy as that, but but yeah, look, I, I think that's all. I've always been drawn to that and, and you know, the mining work, particularly in a place like Waihe in New Zealand where we had the Coromandel, which was the you know, the, the evolution of the Green Party in New Zealand and, and some fantastic people like Jeanette Fitzsimons and Rod Donald. You know, they, they were great to work with, actually, even though we we're on opposing sides, very respectful. Yeah. And working with iwi and, and, again, working with Aboriginal communities, Indigenous people around the world, around land leases and development opportunities. Uh, we're just, you know, when I reflect, actually, just talking to you now, uh, quite an amazing career to have those opportunities. Yeah. And... It's not probably a strange question, but are you an emotional person and, and what part does emotion play in those complex situations or those difficult talks that you're going to have with opposing sides? Like, where does emotion sit in your life? Because you're clearly passionate. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think I've ever really been that interested in businesses that just, even though I was in mining, I was in the community side of it. But the emotional, I think it's more empathetic. And I think that comes from my wife, actually. You know, she's Māori. She's involved with Treaty of Waitangi Settlements. So she's working with Five Iwi across uh, landscape at Mokai Pātea, which is right in the centre of the North Island in Taihapi. You know, you've got to sit there and, and see and understand the view. You might not necessarily agree with that view, but you need to be able to understand where they're coming from and what's driving it. And it was, and it is sitting down and listening. And, you know, one of the great things I was told was, to be able to listen, you, you, you're you not thinking about what you're going to say next. You're really trying to clarify what they've said to you. And, and it was really clear. When, you know, when you're working in a, in a mining town like Waihe, where the, the mining pit is literally 50 metres from the main street of the business community and within 100 metres of people's homes, and you're mining underneath people's homes, you know, to listen to their, what comes across often is anger and is, is really fear. You know, what you what people are talking about is the unknown. The unknown, you know, we know a lot about mining. Whether we, we know the vibration, we know it won't harm their homes, we know all those things, but they don't. And it's trying to then communicate that back and give them clarity. And there's a great um uh there was a great paper that was written uh on the Wahi mine and, and there's a fantastic guy by the name of Dr. Kieran Moffat who I still work with today, and a guy, Sefton Darby, and they, they've built this concept called procedural fairness. And we use it a lot here that procedural fairness is the process by which you build trust, and trust is best built through the quality and the quantity of the communication you have with someone or a group of people, and then they can see that your behaviour is changed because of that communication. So in other words, it's you do what you say you're going to do or that their feedback has been listened to and resulted in change. Mm. And I think that's, that's, you know, that's really important. That's why 
people say, oh, well, no one listens to, you know, councils don't listen to anyone anymore or the government doesn't listen because people feel like they feedback and they don't see a result in change. So those concepts I've learned through some really difficult situations, you know, some very tough, empathetic times where people are truly impacted by operations or truly impacted by what's happening around us. Yeah, and you can't help but be moved. So, you know, yeah. am I an yeah. emotional person? Um yeah, some people would say probably I am, yeah. Yeah, I guess I am. Because you're at the, you know, mining doesn't come across as a very empathetic, you know, industry. You're at the the real, in some ways, the tough end of it, eh? Because you're right there in the community, um, talking to, communicating, listening to the community. And you would have faced real anger. You would have been at meetings where there would have been pitchforks, uh, figuratively, like, but seeing your way through those. And, and relatively, you know, young age doing that. How do you find yourself in those when you know when it's, yeah that's really yeah. tough? How do you yeah, what's, no, what's uh, your... you know you've had I mean not mining is most companies actually uh, are not that empathetic and there's a lot of work around greenwashing and you know whitewashing and but I think I think part of that is is the and you say the same about governments but you know not just figuratively but literally uh, I was shot at and chased with machetes in Papua New Guinea and. I did have my tyres slashed in Coromandel and had people attack my home and things. So, look, it is it is difficult. It, it, there are times there where you, you've you just got to be in control of, of your own behaviour and suck it up and, and, and respond appropriately at the time because people have got a right to, as I said, it's the fear of the unknown generally. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit like what's happening with the with the kickback around the government's policy settings now around allowing you know three levels of three-story homes right next door you know as, as part of can just be done under resource consent for people in urban areas and suddenly you know developers can go in and build a, a three-story home with three units on a block right next door now that's the fear of unknown people now some people will say that's nimbyism but i think there's also a, a fair degree of of righteous anger about that because what it is actually is, is it's the devolution of power. You know, the power to respond to what's happening over your fence line has been diminished. And I think when you when you're looking at companies, you know, we we often would sit around at the executive and people would say, you know, they they want to do all the right things. And at the board company and the and the, the executive, they understood it. But as soon as you drop down a level and you start breaking into silos, you know, the the metrics for the production manager is how many tons they get so if you ask them to stop they don't want to stop producing more tons and you know and the finance manager is about the bottom line so they don't want to incur more cost so you've got to keep breaking those silos down and understand the relationships and when we were doing mining what we realized was you know us going out and just talking to people and calming them wasn't the answer we actually had to go and work with the staff who who actually make the impact. So the classic example of that was the truck drivers used to wait until we rang them to say, hey, can you put water down on the track because it's getting dusty, as a simple example. And then when we said to them, hey, can you see when it's getting dusty? And they said, yes. And I said, well, what's stopping you ordering the water truck yourself? And they went, oh, nothing. We've just never been asked. Yeah. So the solution was always there, but we just hadn't, it wasn't in their job description. You know, no one had thought to mm. put it into their responsibility. And as soon as they did, we solved the problem. Yeah. And it's the same with the vibration from the blasting we used to do. When I went down and 
sat with the guy who designs the blasts and buys the detonators and all those things, asking him the simple question, which was, can we design it in such a way that we reduce vibration? He said, yes, but what that means is we have to buy more expensive detonators. So then we did the numbers and said, well, actually, buying the more expensive detonators means we're not having to stop production because we're having to measure the vibration. So that's a, it's actually a better outcome all around. It's actually, you know, we, we, we get production keeping going. We don't have the complaints. People are happy. Let's spend the money. So it's just, it's just thinking more broadly about how you deliver those solutions for people. And I think that's similar to the community foundations is, you know, rather than just being a grant maker, how can we be active as an investor into making change? And so you're in the in the mine industry. You're overseas, like you, you talked about being shot at, and yeah, you know, di- really difficult situations around the world. In, in fact, but did you have a sense that you wanted your career to be sort of closer to community impact? You know, around philanthropy, development of local infrastructure. You still, I know, you're still involved in consulting in the in the mining world. But did you have the sense coming back to New Zealand that actually you really wanted to get involved in in our community? Was that the feeling? And you talked about your wife being central to that. But is that about your like almost your legacy, career legacy? I don't think I've ever articulated it that way. I know I wasn't interested in just being involved in a business, like I said, that just produces widgets. This for me, the purpose. But it was actually when I came to. Hamilton to back to New Zealand after all that time we were away sort of eight years I um the CEO of the Hamilton City Council a guy by the name of Richard Briggs um brought in a performance program and really focused on the concept of purpose so you know yes your job is to be the general manager of city growth which is all your regulatory requirements and all those things and spatial planning but why do you do that why are you doing that work what is it the purpose of that and and you know we worked really hard on that and the purpose was to create a better Hamilton for Hamiltonians so rather than talking about being a better planner or being a better regulator or being a better miner we said hey how can you do your job in such a way you create a better Hamilton for Hamiltonians and it's to, I know that sounds really subtle but the change of thinking as to how you do your job and why you do it leads people to start thinking about how they might find different solutions to problems and it allows people to think oh i don't just have to use the regulatory rule book i can actually think quite creatively about how i might solve that problem for that person because the purpose is a greater hamilton rather than just oh this rule book says this yeah whatever it is so yeah so i think yeah I, look as i've got older purpose is important you know i i think an organization like momentum is unique in in the community foundations world and that's largely because of our governance they recognize that you know there's plenty of organizations doing grants and and that's important don't get us wrong you know like granting to keep the, the the wheels oiled of communities is important and we absolutely need to keep doing that but opportunities here in waikato to utilize philanthropy and generosity in a way that also seeks to try new ways of solving problems i think is really quite cool you know so it was actually set up by mark engel mark engel was the then chairman of the well energy trust and in waikato we have the well energy trust and a number of other smaller trusts and then we have you know trust waikato which is your big you know community trust that most regions would have in the country and they, they dwarf us you know Community Foundation is, uh, so Trust Waikato is 400 million, 480 million 
uh, Well Energy Trust is sort of 160 odd million in assets and, and things like that. So, but Mark recognised there needed to be another avenue for that captured generosity and another way of trying to resolve issues that wasn't just about another grant program. Yeah. So really unique people in our governance that saw it differently, that saw us operating more commercially. And what we mean by that is that doesn't mean that we go out and make lots of money, but it means that we look at investment in terms of what change can we make and that we'll do, you know, we, we will do deals with people to make things happen. And, you know, we do bring capability and skill sets to the table, which perhaps we hadn't thought of in other areas. Yeah. Ran a real facilitation role, and central to the your you know coming into this role was share the stage in the Waikato Regional Theatre, and what a journey you've been on. So um, I've got it down to sort of eighty million raised. You've had all sorts of challenges. You're getting closer and closer to to building this theatre. Tell us about you know the excitement you had around taking on that challenge, and a bit more detail about the the challenges that have faced over the last few years. When I came on board. The role that I hold now with Momentum is two roles. So it is the CEO role of Momentum and our team of seven. And they're fantastic people that I work with here. But also it was the project director role for the theatre. The board said, look, you got you can do two, the two roles. It helps us out. And in fact, it absolutely enabled us to grow our presence and our brand the theatre. So the theatre concept came after 2016. I was actually still at council. I'd only just come back to New Zealand. The Founders Theatre, which had been built in the 1960s, was closed for earthquake strengthening and, and there was some discussion that it would cost $25 million to get it up. And the board at the time, before I joined, had said, look, this is the opportunity for us to prove our mettle in terms of bringing philanthropy and generosity to the table. And they went forward and said, look, if you gave us that $25 million, we think we can uh, bring ge- generosity to the table and that we can leverage that and turn that into something great for the city in terms of revitalising the CBD, uh, revitalising the performing arts sector into into Hamilton, and actually strategically as part of the Hamilton Gardens and the Hamilton Zoo and the river walkways and cycleways of Tiara, right, you know, actually have a real a flagship. So the council bravely, actually, to, to give them their due, said, yep, that sounds really good. And then Trust Waikato came on board really quickly with $15 million and there was a, a few private donations. And, and that's when I was then approached to come on at that point. So at that point, that was, by this stage, that was twenty March of 2018. And <laughs> it was kind of sold that, you know, hey, look, it's a few applications for funding and we'll talk to a few donors and we'll have it all built in three years. Well, um, <laughs> you know, then, then something called COVID came along. And it wasn't quite that easy. We we uh, the budget was seventy three point nine million at that stage, and we didn't really. We, but we only had conceptual designs. We had found a site, and I have to say, you know, Mitch Bloor and the family and the, and the company at APL donated a, a city a, a CBD centre site for the theatre, such that they wanted to invest in the community, which was just you know outstanding generosity when you think about that in context. Riverside site right in the centre of the town for, to the deal. and and you know they've just been a fantastic floor family have just been right behind us from day one. So were they the owners of the hotel that was on that site? Was that- yes, yeah. So there was an there. That's right. So the site they cho- if you if you could have chosen a worse site <laughs> in a lot of ways for challenges. So it had a um, had an old heritage hotel which the Queen, the late Queen, had stayed in in 1953. So it was a historic site. 
Then with local iwi, we identified there was an urupa in the bottom right-hand corner or riverside corner, which was which we so knew it's a about. burial site. Is that right, Calvin? Correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a traditional Māori burial site, but obviously, you know, quite historic in nature. And that we we knew that was there, so we then had to shift the building some eight meters westward to to completely give ourselves um, space. So it was a historic site. It was a large site. It was right in the CBD. It had an urupa on it, a burial site, and, and heritage items. And then, just as we were about to kick off, we'd just been given twelve million dollars from the provincial growth run for government. We'd had the prime minister here to announce that, and then in March, COVID hit, and literally. We'd been in COVID a week, and then we got the letter from Heritage New Zealand saying that they wouldn't give us authority to build because of the Urupa issue. So we, we that's when we decided to, you know, just and it wasn't a hard decision; it was a quite an easy decision. It was like, right, well, we just need to move the building as far away as we can uh, to to completely give confidence that we're not touching the site. In fact, we can then secure the site for all appropriate cultural reasons. And we had the backing of Wakata Iwi and Tahao to Whenua Kirikiriroa, who were the local mana whenua here. And and so that was an easy decision. But of course, we're doing this during the first months of COVID. So, so we're all learning how to use <laughs> Zoom and Teams and other bits and pieces. And of course, yeah. you know, try and get technical people to measure the sites and do all those things. Was We couldn't do it because we were locked down. So that um, you know that that first lockdown just slowed us right up, and then we got out of that. We had agreement, and then another iwi group then decided to take us to the Environment Court because they believed that Heritage, well, not they actually took Heritage New Zealand because they felt that they hadn't run due process, and that held us up right through to while well, we went through that process, and it was found that they had no no legs to stand on, and it was. The process of Heritage New Zealand was fine, and we we reached an agreement with them. Did at any point did you think this wasn't going to happen? Did you did you start when especially like COVID hit and you were having these challenges because you because you had engaged Maori, um, you had engaged iwi, like but did you get a sort of point? We thought ah, this is really isn't going to happen. Did you get downhearted by it? Yeah, I, look, absolutely. I remember um, I <laughs> you talk about being emotional, but we finally settled the environment court. I think it was on the nineteenth of December, twenty twenty, and you know, and we still had some lockdowns to come and things, which you didn't know about. And I remember walking in to the office and seeing uh, Janice Latwood, my development director, and just said, "We've done it. We've got the agreement." And I think I just <laughs> just had tears in my eyes about now I can go to Christmas and <laughs> you know and sleep at night. So absolutely, yeah. yeah, it was pretty full on. And then of course. COVID had effect. We had supply challenges, and the costings went from seventy three point nine to eighty million dollars. And suddenly we're like, "Well, do we think we can raise another six million? And do we think, and can we find?" And actually, the, the initial number was a bit higher than that. So we had to work with the construction team to get it down. And so yeah, there was. We didn't sign the construction contract sort of May twenty twenty one, and we had the final sod turning that commenced the start of the project in December of twenty twenty one. But all through that early part all through 2020 of COVID and through those early parts of 2021 yeah there wasn't a lot of sleep in terms of extra costs extra challenges supply numbers but uh, as it's rolled out and, and we've got the you know the the support of people like Leonard Garder and Neil Richardson and Ross Hargood and Belinda Milk I mean just everyone in the team and I think people had by then had got right behind the project so there was no way it wasn't going to happen you know that the community had got right behind it. The staff, the iwi, 
you know, central government, we, we were all so committed. It was like, okay, let's stop about what. And there was just a, there was, I remember there was a moment where Ross Hargood said, okay, we can look at this as risk and just look at all the problems, or we can just find out how we're going to make it happen. And it was almost like, that. again, it's all mindset, right? What's the purpose? The purpose is to provide a great venue where every student in, in the region can experience world-class performing arts. So, okay, what do we need to do? And we just you know, literally sat down and wrote step by step what we had to do to, to overcome every challenge. And actually, it's a little bit like the old adage of how do you how do you eat an elephant? It is literally one bite at a time. And that's how we started mm. the process when we had this massive task of raising 80 million. We did exactly yeah. the same thing. So we just reverted back to the practices we knew and the values we held and what we were all about. And you know, here we are. The, it's underway. The building's underway. We're down to, in terms of our public fundraising, we kicked that off in uh, May of this year called Share the Stage, which is, was the last $5 million, uh, we needed to find from the community. And we're down to the last 1.7 of that. Uh, already so and we've still got you know a program of works to come so uh, and we've got a naming rights opportunity that's sitting out there now as well so we we will reach our target groups have been now and now we're focused on the operating company and getting that set up so massive challenge perhaps was i i underestimated the size of the challenge and i think i've got it Less hair and a few more grey ones, but um, yeah, it will be a fantastic <laughs> asset. And you know, by the community for the community, which I love. What did you learn about yourself in that process? I look, I learned that I perhaps needed to reach out a bit more for people. One of the issues when you're a CEO of a small team, you know, ha- having come from a multinational mining company, when you've got major issues, you know, when you've got protesters at the gate, or when you're dealing with a, a, a very complex land issue. You've got lots of resource. You've got lots of people and expertise coming that you can reach out to and they respond. But when you're in a smaller team, you as a CEO, you've got to carry a lot of that drive and you've got to carry a lot of the doing and a lot of the thinking. And what I learned is that in a small team, you actually have to reach out more. You actually have to reach out and use your network. And again, I, I, took, I talk about the generosity of the Waikato, but, you know, once I started to reach out, and, and I actually had people ringing me to see if I was okay, which was quite humbling, you know. Like, um, and it just it just enabled you to ask them a question, and then and then that enabled you to ask another question and open the door a bit more. So, yeah, being this concept of vulnerability, I didn't, yeah, being a fifty year old white male, I was like, oh yeah, what's all that about? But actually, that's what vulnerability is—the ability to ask for help and say I don't know the answer. So. That was quite humbling, actually, uh, to do that because you do spend hours in the middle of the night lying awake going, how am I going to do this? How are we going to get this over the line? So, yeah, reaching out, sharing that problem get, and, and going to people who know how this stuff is done. Yeah, you're not alone. It's, it, it was quite cool. Yeah, and I've walked around Hamilton with you and everyone know you know everyone and they know you. What's it going to be like for you when this project's over the line? And, you know, it's going to be a... Have you been run over by it, energized by it? You you know, what does it look like for Calvin post-project? Because it's been a huge challenge. Yeah, look, I, I, look, it's a team thing, you know. Like, um, I, I know we, we throw around, oh, yeah, because of COVID, because of COVID, but we almost underestimate what that was. Like, for, for the first part of this year still, you know, we were operating as a small team of seven and two different shifts. So for the first half of the year, we hadn't actually connected as a team apart from online, and whilst online stuff is good for 
transactional discussion, it doesn't build culture and it doesn't build a sense of shared belief or shared working towards it. And as soon as we got the team together, what happened was straight away I got re-energized again because I was, you know, I was, I was kind of tired and stressed and and more just where's the energy to get this thing happening. But once we were together as a team and we could focus back on that purpose and we actually all sat down together and re recommitted to what that purpose was, not just for Momentum Waikato, but for the theatre. You know, it was like, right, hey, we, we can do this. By the end of the year, we can clean all this up and we can go into Christmas with a clear head for the first time in four years, right? We're, it's happening. We've got the money. Let's have a decent and, and just enjoy the the project. I mean, the project won't, in terms of construction, it won't be actually open, but it'll be finished in uh, sort of March, April 2024. So, you know, there's a massive construction time for it. It's underway now. We've got demolition. So come May 2024 when there's opening night, that's probably when I'll sit back and enjoy a, a wine and know it's been done. But even now I, I feel, you know, people are really – what's interesting is that you end up in your own little circle. So, you know, the trust and the board and the staff. But now that it's live, you know, we, we held a quiz night uh, hosted by Mark Survey and our comms manager with the with the performance community, and it was just reinvigorating to see people who actually want to use the venue. You know, who are the creators of uh, of content and the stage managers, just so excited about this project. Seeing the school kids so excited about when we've had Stan Walker come and do singer songwriters, and you go, ah, oh, yeah, the building and the money and the contracts and all that. It, that's one part of it, actually when those kids are doing that performance or when those performers are up there on stage and that's why we're doing it. So the building is just bricks and mortar, but what comes out of it and the experiences, that's what keeps us going. So, you know, for me, um, I'll be really happy when the first stage is up there. And I've got a bit of a challenge. My father's 85 and, as I said, he's an accomplished jazz musician and he wants to go and play the piano on stage. So <laughs> we better get it built. Wonderful. Soon. Yeah. Yeah. And do you feel optimistic about, there's a lot of negativity um, running around these days, but do you feel optimistic about the region, about the future for the Waikato, for Hamilton? Yeah, look, I do. I I, I think, um, you know, Hamilton and the Waikato gets a bit of a bad rap because it's one of the few big cities that's not on a coastline, right? You know, you got, and I lived in Tauranga on the mountain, heavily involved in surf lifesaving is my other sort of passion. And yet here I am living in an inland town next to a river. But this place, this region, you know, built off agriculture and horticulture and now in manufacturing and the tech science. It's got the largest university hospital here, the Waikato universities here, Wintech's here. The, the foundations and the, the opportunity and its location, as I said, so close to over half the country's population. You know, you live in Hamilton, it's got great employment opportunities across a number of base sectors. And, you know, for, for those of you who know New Zealand, yeah, from here, like I said, we're an hour and hour and twenty minutes now with the expressway to Auckland Centre, hour and ten minutes to the international airport. We're an hour to Rotorua. We're an hour to Waihi Beach. We're an hour to Raglan Beach. Yeah, we're an hour and a half to Lake Taupo to Mount Munganui. We're an hour. Everything's within that sixty to ninety minute drive time. From that perspective, we're so close to everything that New Zealand has to offer. Even the ski fields are only three, you know, three hours away. Like it's. But I just think all of those attributes added together and people are suddenly realising that 
hey, you know, the city's growing up, got a major theatre. We've got national head offices like Rabobank have just moved here where the head of Te Pukinga, which is the Tertiary Education Institute, is based here in Hamilton. The Judicial Review Office is based here in Hamilton. ACC's got their largest office in New Zealand based here in Hamilton. So Kmart is moving to Hamilton as part of the Tainui Group Holdings Development at Ruakura, so the largest inland port development in the country is happening on the edges of the city. So, you know, the rail links come through here. We've got rail now connecting Hamilton to Auckland. So, yeah, look, I am. And that's from an economic livability perspective. But, you know, the generosity of people in this region to support things, whether it's in their own town. So one of the, just a little example, is we've just employed our first sub-regional role in in the Coromandel, a woman called Michelle, who's Michelle Crook, based out of Whangamata, and what we've realised is that people want to give to their local communities. So she's developed a, a Momentum Whangamata or a Momentum Coromandel site. And already, just by talking about the things we're talking about, like bequests and growing an endowment and providing generosity, within the first month, she's been inundated with requests about how do we support our community? What can we do to provide support for the future of this town and, and, and this community? And I think that's the secret. Yeah, you know, we can do things that are, what Momentum Waikato does is gives a gives the good the good governance, it gives the big structure, it gives the financial stability, it brings capability, but that's at the high level. But fundamentally, at the local level, people want to give to their communities. And it's very tribal and it's very connected. And that's where we've got to be operating. So, you know, we can talk about eighty million dollar theatres and that's fantastic, but and it is. But the real fantastic is when you are sitting in a community like Whangamata or Otorohonga and someone comes down and says, look, I want to establish a fund that's going to support this community or this cause in this town. And that, that can be as modest as $50,000 or a bequest as part of their estate, right through to you know, the biggest one we've got was a trust transfer of some $11 million. So, you know, the, the word is getting out. And as you know, you know, the, the foundation endowment movement is relatively new to New Zealand but done well and done locally, and um, I think that's only going to continue to grow. Yeah, wonderful. Covenant Eglinton, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.